Good morning, everybody. You doing well? Yeah, what a sweet time there, enjoying some of that music together. And uh, especially warm welcome to you if you're visiting us maybe for the very first time. My name is Tim, and one of the pastors here. And if you're a regular here at IBC, you know that I wasn't here last Sunday. Um, my wife Lisa and I, we got away for uh, just a little getaway, went up, flew up north to Santa Rosa and spent some time with our daughter and her family, just had a great time. And while I was gone, uh, Jeremy Allen stepped into the pulpit and uh, was with you. And yeah, and from what I hear, it was just a great morning, spending time in Ephesians chapter 3. And, and I'm just so grateful to the Lord for the gifts that he gives to us and the form of persons and that uh, Jeremy brought the good word last Sunday. My privilege to help us enjoy the Lord and worship him through his word today. So... If I could, I'd like to ask you to please take your Bible and rejoin me again in the seventh chapter of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And as you're heading that direction, also retrieve this little note page from your bulletin, if you wouldn't mind, because that will be helpful along the way. As we continue our verse-by-verse explore of what I certainly consider to be one of the Bible's most demanding and challenging bits of scriptural terrain that there is. And apparently I'm not alone in my thinking of the book of Ecclesiastes in this way. A couple of Sundays ago, an elderly gentleman was visiting our church family for the first time, and he greeted me at the door after the service was over, and he said, You are brave. I have been in the church all of my life, and I have never once heard a sermon, much less a series, on Ecclesiastes. And I'm still not exactly sure how to take his comment, (laughs) whether he thought we were doing the right thing, or maybe whether it was more of a case of him thinking, you know, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. I'd like to think he meant the former, that we are doing the right thing by spending some time in the book of Ecclesiastes. Obviously, I believe that this is where the Lord wants us to be right now. We're in the middle of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we are studying road signs together, road signs that lead to more successful living. In fact, speaking of road signs, if you were with us two Sundays ago, I shared with you some real-life road signs that I had uh, found off on the internet, but I didn't share all of those road signs with you that I had found. Just wondering if you'd like to see a few more of the road signs, real life road signs that I have uh, come across off of uh, the internet. How about this one? This is a great sign. If you hit this sign, you will hit that bridge. (laughs) That is a very effective sign, very practical. I love it. Uh, Here's another sign. It goes like this, warning, this road crosses U.S. Air Force bombing range for the next 12 miles. Objects may fall from aircraft. <laughs> now, that, that's an informative sign, but I'm not sure you can do much with the information. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Or how about this sign, which tells you what you already know? If you can read this, you've just had an accident, <laughs> and your car is upside down. All right. How about this one? Tells you what you already know. Caution, water on road during rain. No kidding. Or how about this one? This is a sign that leaves you going, hmm. 
Lane closed to ease congestion. You know, we're not sure about that. Or how about, there's a sign that caused you to do a double take. Don't drink and drive. (laughs) And maybe the guy, the, the, the city worker who did this should have been looking at that other sign, right? <laughs> and then what would you do if you came on to this sign? I'd turn back if I was you. Oh, man. Wow, that's some fun with those signs. Now, as I say, we are in the middle of Ecclesiastes 7, and we are studying road signs. Road signs of a different kind than those, obviously, Road signs to more successful living. We've been imagining ourselves as travelers moving down life's highway, and along the way, Solomon, who is the human author of the book of Ecclesiastes, who possesses an incredible God-given wisdom, he has been posting road signs for us in this chapter in the form of Proverbs. He's kind of like the spiritual Caltrans worker of 900 B.C., and he's been posting these truth statements for us as travelers on life's highway, wisdom statements, because that's what Proverbs are. They are wisdom statements that if we heed the signs, if we heed the wisdom statements, well, that's going to result in more effective, successful living for us. Now, in the course of moving through the first 10 verses of chapter 7, which is as far as we've gotten to this point, we've come upon several road signs. So just by way of a refresher, we came upon this sign in verse 1, watch for falling character. Our character is one of the most priceless things that we possess. We need to protect it. So watch for a falling character. Another sign that we came upon, hard times have the most to teach, So keep moving forward. Don't back away from the hard times. Move through them and learn from them. And then we saw a a sign in chapter, in verse 5, turn in to a wise rebuke. Rather than turn away from a, a confrontation or a rebuke, turn into it because there's value in doing that. That's a a wise thought. In verse 7, we came on to this sign, warning us about the power of bribes to be able to corrupt our hearts. The sign, this heart, my heart, not for sale at any price. Don't be bribed. And then at the, and then the next one we came upon was the end is better. The end of a matter is better than the beginning of a matter because at the end of a matter, you have all of the truth. Before, you don't know everything that there is in that situation, but at the end, you do. So it's better. And then we came around a bend in the road, and we came upon this sign, slow to anger, verse 8, verse 9, a sign and a warning that we all need to heed if we really desire that the love of Jesus would be reflected in us. We want to be people who are slow to anger. And then in verse 10 was this sign waiting for us, no U-turn back to the what? Those good old days, right? Solomon says there's no wisdom really in looking backward. So, so press on. The future is the only thing that we really can influence. So let's, let's not be foolish and look back over our shoulder. Let's be moving ahead all the time. 
Well, all of that brings us as travelers today to verses 11 and following and to a part of this life highway that we've not been down yet. So you ready for some new road signs with me? Yeah? Let's take a look. I want you to imagine with me that you're on a long road trip. Have you ever been on a super long road trip? Oh, man. Remember those long, long road trips? What that, The miles just kind of melt into each other. And, and no matter how we move around in the car seat, it just, just, we just cannot get comfortable. And uh, the big iced tea that we've been drinking, that catches up with us. And, and that's when we think, boy, it would sure be nice to find one of those blue and white rest area signs soon, right? Where we can get out, we can stretch our legs, and we can be refreshed. Well, that's exactly what Solomon gives us in verses 11 and 12. He writes these words. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. And then if you jump down to verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. And so the sign that Solomon posts for us here is wisdom rest area. He mentions the word wisdom four times in three verses. And if you notice how this sign is laid out, the family here is under the covering of wisdom and they're standing as a result in this place of rest. And that's really what Solomon is trying to say to us. He says, wisdom is a great advantage because it comes with an inheritance. Well, what's the inheritance? Well, with wisdom comes protection and preservation He says in verse 11 and 12, and it supplies special strength to us in verse 19 that we would not otherwise have. So this is the wisdom rest area. And Solomon knows something about wisdom. He is, after all, the man to whom God gave the greatest single allotment of wisdom of anyone who has ever lived. And what is this wisdom that Solomon is thinking about? Well, the more classic answer to that question is that it's the one we would expect to hear. Sounds like this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. And we say amen to that, right? That's wisdom. True wisdom does begin with acknowledging God and giving him first place in our lives. That's the very best wisdom that we could possibly have. But as Solomon uses this word wisdom here in chapter 7, he brings it down under the sun, if you will. And and if you notice in verse 11, he says wisdom is this God-given ability to see life with a rare kind of objectivity. And then that enables us then to handle life's issues and challenges with unusual skill. And that's the kind of wisdom that that, that. Uh, Solomon is thinking about a wisdom that comes from God and it's not human in origin. It is a gift from God. It's a God given ability to apply the truth that God has built into his world to the many issues and, and, and challenges that we face to be objective and skillful in life matters. Remember, this is what 
Solomon asked for from God when he became the king of Israel. He inherits the throne from his father David, and he says to God, I am not fit for this task. I cannot lead this people. I need something from you to do that. And what he needed was wisdom. And God says, I will give you that. And he did in a great, great way. But brothers and sisters, here's the cool thing about that. We, says God's word, can ask God for this very same wisdom. The wisdom that Solomon asked for. You and I can ask for it as well. And God would be pleased to give it to us as a gift as well. In fact, listen to the words of James in the New Testament. You know these words. They're familiar to many of you. James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask who? Let him ask God. Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask how, church? In faith. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. James says God is pleased to impart to us his kind of wisdom, assuming that we know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and his spirit is living within us. And then we can ask. We can ask with confidence and embrace the words by faith that God will give us the wisdom that we need to do life with him. So the question we might ask as we stand under this sign, wisdom rest area, is am I doing that? Am I asking God for this special imparting gift of wisdom? Lord, I desire to be able to see life the way that you see it, with objectivity, with realism. Please enable me to to make choices in this life as you would make them, to handle life's issues with the kind of skill that will glorify you, that will serve my family well and will allow me to be a blessing to others. I ask you for that wisdom. James says, under the inspiration of the Spirit, we can ask for this. May you and I never be so foolish as to race by this sign as we journey down life's highway. Every day, start the day here. Rest and ask for wisdom. Does that make sense? That makes great sense. That's just being wise. So that's the sign we have in verses 11 and 12. But as we continue on down the highway, the next sign we come to looks like this. Let's go there. Yeah. Now, you've never seen this sign on the highway before, I'll bet. But it is on life's highway. Sovereign God, scenic overlook. Picture yourself. As you have done, I know you've all done this. I have done this. You're driving down the highway. You're maybe in the mountains somewhere, and and there's some pullout where you can turn off to the side, and there's this majestic, scenic vista. We've all been there. We've all done this. The panorama stretches out in front of you, and you cannot take it all in. It's it's absolutely breathtaking. It's it's overwhelming. You actually feel like you just have to, to sit down and, because you, you can tell you're looking out over time and space and this, this immensity and this beauty. And you just take it all in. Just below you, you can see the road winding back and forth down the mountain. Only you notice that very, very soon the road 
fades into the landscape and you can't see it anymore. You have no clue what really lies ahead on life's highway, only that the road twists and turns down into the somewhere and then it becomes unknowable. Verse 13, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. What is Solomon saying in these two verses? I believe he's declaring what you and I already know, church family. He's declaring the undeniable, unalterable, absolute fact. God, you are in control here. Not me. Not us. Not mankind. You are in sovereign control of all things. As he pushes life through His grid, Solomon admits that puny mankind doesn't really have a clue as to what God is is doing or what his purpose or plans are on an individual or personal level and certainly not on a cosmic level. If blessing and joy filled happy times come into your life, Solomon says enjoy them as the gift from God. They're from God. If adversity and trial are to be the story of your life, for a season. Well, that too is unfolding, Solomon says, under the watchful, permissive eye of a sovereign God whose purposes are beyond us. And even if we did know what God's ultimate purposes were for us, church family, Solomon says we really can't change what God determines to do. He's sovereign. If he makes it crooked, crooked it stays, Right? And if he makes it straight, no amount of effort on our part is going to bend it, right? Because he's sovereign. He's in control. Living successfully from Solomon's perspective requires that this sign be posted and that you and I acknowledge it. Otherwise, we're going to drive ourselves crazy if we can't live underneath the truth of this sign. The people of God stand under this sign. They know their God will not do anything that is not ultimately for their good and in keeping with his highest and best and most loving purposes. Just a few of dozens of reminders from the Bible that support this road sign would be, for example, Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he what? He does. What is that? sovereignty that's the sovereignty of god in heaven on earth in the seas and all deep that pretty much covers it sovereign over all of it job will say in job 42 verse 2 i know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be what thwarted it can't we can't change it if you sovereignly determine it it's going to happen proverbs 16:33 the lot is cast in the lap but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, there's no such thing as chance. It's from God. He sovereignly controls. And how about Romans 8.28? We all know this verse. Let's read this aloud. Can we read it aloud together, the top one off of the screen? Let's do it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called 
according to His purpose. What is that? Sovereignty. God working good for those who love Him. Sovereignty. Psalm 40, verse 5. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders You have done, the things You planned for us. No one can recount to you, and were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. We cannot, from our finite, creaturely, locked in time and space place, see the big picture that God is doing. God in His mercy doesn't permit that because He knows we couldn't handle it. But He does see the beginning from the end. He knows perfectly how each of us fit into His plan. And so as wise travelers... Maybe we pause long here at this scenic overlook just to be reminded, just to be refreshed. God, you're sovereign in my life, and I trust you. That's a great place to be, isn't it? As God's people? Yeah, living under this sign. If you flip your note page over, when we do get back on life's highway and we start down this winding road into the mist of unknowable tomorrows... It's not long before we come upon yet another wisdom road sign. And this one reads, Fear God, avoid two extremes. Most of us have seen many times, either on t-shirts or posters or decals, the slogan, no fear. Right? You've seen that slogan? Yeah, it's all over the place, actually. Well, Solomon would say this, No fear, if that's truly the life motto or creed that you live by, if you live by this no fear creed, then Solomon would say, you're a fool. That's a fool's creed. Wise travelers through life fear. The word is reverence as well. We respect, we defer, we yield to, we reverence who? God, the wise fear God and live with humility and great care before him because he's God. Fear God. No fear. That's not that's not our slogan. That's not our motto as the people of God. Let's read the verses that hold this sign. It's verses 15 to 18 which, by the way, are verses that have given preachers and Bible teachers no small amount of trouble. We'll see if we can understand what Solomon is trying to say. Verse 15. In my vain life, or we could say, under the sun, in my life under the sun, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now, you read this. And you're probably scratching your head saying, what in the world is that about? What did I just read? If that's where you are, we're all in this together. We all feel the same thing. Probably the most common approach taken to 
interpreting or understanding verses 15 to 18 is to, to think that Solomon is encouraging us to live by the rule of the golden mean or the golden middle. That is to say, live a moderate lifestyle somewhere in the middle between trying to be super holy and trying to be really evil. You live somewhere in the middle of those two things. Avoid those two extremes and you're going to do fine in your life. I don't think Solomon is saying that at all. And you probably don't either. He is addressing what was common in belief in his day just as it is common as a belief in our day. A belief in the doctrine of rewards and curses. You say, what? Tim, what? Doctrine of rewards and curses. I've never heard that doctrine. Well, no, you've never heard that term because I just made that up. But but you've heard it. You just never had a name for it. The doctrine of rewards and curses. It's the belief held by countless numbers of people around the world that if you're good in this life, then God blesses you. And if you're bad in this life, then what? God squashes you, right? And there are many people who believe that, rewards and curses. Solomon says with the wise objectivity that he possesses, hey, hey, that doctrine doesn't wash. That that, that doesn't stand up to the observations that I see in my world. From my place under the sun, I've seen the righteous, the, the really good people suffer terribly. And I've also seen the wicked prosper more and more and more, the more wicked they become. So this, this, this doctrine of, of rewards and curses, it doesn't work. Now Solomon observes that there are two possible extreme conclusions that people might come to given that they've seen as he seen what he has seen. One is to think that the reason that the righteous didn't prosper was because they weren't righteous enough. And so the extreme is to try to become super righteous, to become super good, super holy, super spiritual. In other words, to trust in your own diligent effort to be as good as you can possibly be in order to win God's favor. So you go way out there, super extreme. I'm going to be really, really good. And so it becomes, for that person, a works-based way of relating to God. If I do it good enough, God will reward me here on earth, in this life, and eventually he'll let me into his heaven. I just need to be good enough. Now, this is the very trap that the religious leaders of Jesus' day stumbled into, if you remember. They were trying to to good work their way into God's blessing, essentially trusting in self and in self-righteous effort in order to win God's favor and bring about good in their life. Solomon says in verse 16 that such self-trust will lead to destruction. It will lead to ruin. It will lead to loss. In fact, Jesus said the very same thing. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verses 22 and 23? Here's what Jesus says. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Did we not do lots and lots of really good things? Here's what Jesus says. Then I will declare to them, I, what? I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Because it was all about you. It was all about working for yourself. Not for the glory of God. Avoid this extreme, Solomon says. Well, the other extreme is the person who looks at their world and and concludes that because the wicked do seem to often live long and prosper, well, then God must not exist. Or if he does exist, he really isn't a factor in the affairs of mankind. Eat, drink, be merry, do whatever you want to do, live however you want. God is a non-issue. Verse 17 says that this too is an extreme approach to life and it, it doesn't work. The truth, says Solomon, is that God very may well respond to such wicked arrogance by bringing untimely loss or even death. And so as we take the, the, the truth of this road sign the, in, the, the wise are going to avoid these two extremes. Trusting in one's own goodness to win God's favor as well as living like there is no God at all. You avoid those two extremes. The wise will reverence God, fear God, and live for Him. In fact, listen to the words of the ancient prophet Isaiah. This is a a wonderful passage. The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times. A rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The what, church? The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. The key that unlocks the treasure to salvation and wisdom and knowledge is the fear of the Lord. No one can lay down a stronger or more solid foundation than, than, than for their family or for themselves personally than to resolve to put God first, to fear Him, humbly acknowledging that he is, He's worthy to be first in, in all things in my life. And when we do that, the blessing comes. Psalm 128, verse 1, boldly affirms, Blessed is everyone who, what? Fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. As we travel, brothers and sisters, as we travel life's highway, we will be wise if we fear God and avoid these two extremes. Does it make sense? That's wisdom. And then all of that brings us to verse 20, which will be as far as we're going to go down the road today. Verse 20. And as we continue, Solomon posts a sign in verse 20 that reads like this. Notice, sinners only, no exceptions. Now, we've not seen that sign on any road that we've ever traveled on, I'm guessing. But it's right here. Verse 20, surely 
There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do you agree with this sign? Yeah. As Solomon looked at humanity traveling down life's road, he noticed a universal truth. Everyone on this road is a sinner. There were no exceptions. He looked around, and and yes, there were some who were evil to the extreme. And yes, there were others who were amazingly diligent to to try to avoid evil. They were good. But without exception, as, as Solomon looked at his world and the people in the world, every single person was a sinner. Surely, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So, church family, what do we mean when we say that everyone sins and everyone is a sinner? That's not a popular thought in our culture today. That's not a message that people want to hear. That I sin and that I am a sinner. Now, some of you who have been with us for a while, you've been over this ground that we're about to step on, but but some maybe have never been on this ground with us before, and, and it never hurts to have a reminder. So so sin, what what is this thing we call sin and being a sinner? Well, sin, as we find it in the in our Bibles, on the pages of our Bibles, was originally an archery term. It was a it was a term that comes right out of archery. Think of an archery target with its, its concentric circles and it has a bullseye, right? And the goal in the archery shooting of a target is you want to hit the what? Well, you want to hit that bullseye. That's what you're aiming for is the bullseye. You want to hit the center mark. When someone hit the bullseye with the arrow, well, that was great. But if they, if they didn't hit the bullseye, then they missed the mark. That word for missed the mark was the word sin in ancient times. You missed the mark. You didn't hit the target. Well, that became, over time, a perfect way to describe what happens in our lives. God defines the bullseye of what he wants for us, how he wants us to live, how he wants us to act and think and speak and do. The bullseye is God's will. We don't always hit the bullseye, do we? We don't always hit God's bullseye with our lives and with our choices. Sometimes we deliberately shoot somewhere else just because we want to. We just want to miss the target. Other times we miss the target out of ignorance, sometimes out of foolishness on our part. God tells us what he wants, and we don't do it. Either willingly or unwillingly, we don't do it. Well, that's sin. That's missing the mark. And Solomon says, without exception, every single person has missed the mark. Do you agree? Every person in this room right now has missed the mark. You have and I have. We are sinners. It's what we are. All of us as we travel life's highway. 
And Solomon is, is not the only one who makes this declaration in Scripture. In Romans 3.23, the Holy Spirit tells us through the pen of the Apostle Paul, most people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does it say? All. All. How many is all? That's all. That's pretty inclusive. No exclusions, right. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all done this. We've missed the mark. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah relaying the words of God says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have have turned every one to his own way. We're all like sheep. We've missed the mark. And it is David who reminds us in Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. All have turned aside. They've together become corrupt. There is no one who does good. What are the last three words? Not even one. The sign is accurate, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, it's accurate so far as the human race is concerned, so far as you and I are concerned. Sinners only, no exceptions. And the terrible reality of this sign is that unless something is done about the sin that resides in you and in me, we are destined to spend eternity separated from a holy God. That's the reality of this sign. Because he's sinlessly holy. He cannot be in relationship or have fellowship with sin or sinners who commit sin. He's holy. But you and I, we know that there is one exception to this sign. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. The God-man, Jesus Christ, is the one exception to this sign. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, his name is Jesus, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Amen and amen. God knew that beings, being sinners ourselves, sin-infected as we are, We could never on our own remove the sin that resides within us or the guilt or the death or the separation that sin produces. God knew as well that he could not just ignore the sin in our lives and still be God who is true to his own nature and character. He can't just blow it off and say, well, the sin's really no big deal to me. He couldn't do that. So what does God do? What does God do? Well, he comes to earth himself in the person of his own son, Jesus. Jesus puts on human flesh over his own sinless glory as God, and he walks life's highway, the very same highway that you and I are walking on, but he does it with sinless perfection. And this being true, we now have one who can stand in our place, as one of us, and represent us to a holy God without any sin. And if he were willing, 
if he were willing, he could take the punishment for sin that is ours, he could take that for us, place it on himself, and stand in our place and represent us before God. He could take the death and separation that should be ours, because sin always brings death and separation. He could take that judgment for us, die our death, pay the sin debt that we owe, which God then would would be able to satisfy His justice and at the same time grant forgiveness to you and me because the sin debt was paid. Not by us, but by the perfect sinless Son of God. The glorious good news, the message of the Bible is that Jesus was willing. He was willing. He did pay for the sin in your life and the sin in my life. And then He rose from the dead to prove that He's more powerful than sin, death, or the grave. It's the solution to the curse of sin and death in our life that only God could have come up with. No one else could have thought this up. This is God's solution to the truth of this sign that we're all sinners. In fact, here's how the Bible shares this glorious truth with us. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Can we just read this together right off the screen, church family? Let's do it. For the wages of sin is death, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice those words, free gift. Earlier we talked about the extreme decision of trying to work one's way into favor with God by trying to be super good, super righteous. Can't happen. This verse says we can never do that because forgiveness of sin is a gift from God. And the moment that we try to earn it or work for it, it's no longer a gift. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can't be bought. Can't be earned. It can only be received. A gift. And on this highway that Solomon tells us about in verse 20, where everyone is a sinner walking in spiritual darkness, listen to what the Holy Spirit says in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have what? Redemption, the forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness of sin of sin in Jesus. So how does the sinner receive this redemption and this forgiveness? Well, that's the most amazing part of the story, isn't it? We just admit what we are. Sinners. We own the truth of the sign. We accept it. It's true. It's describing us. We admit that we cannot solve our sin problem. We cannot pay the debt that we owe to God. As a humble and grateful act of the will, we simply believe, we confess, Jesus, you took my sin debt, mine, and you died for it on the cross, trusting nothing in me and relying solely on what you have done. I believe you did that for me. You died for me. 
You rose from the dead for me. We believe that God gave us the gift of Jesus. And His loving sacrifice redeems us fully and forever forgiven. Amen? That's the glorious truth of of the gospel. That's the truth of the Bible. We call this trusting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's something we can only do by faith. In one eternity-changing moment, God, according to Colossians chapter 1 here, lifts us off of the highway called sin and death and transfers us to the highway that leads to life in the kingdom where Jesus reigns. Admit our sin, repent of it, and believe that Jesus died so that we could have life, so we could be forgiven. Solomon, for all of his wisdom, did not have the advantage that you and I have living today. He didn't know about Jesus. He didn't know about God's plan for sinners. He could only post the sign, everyone is a sinner, no exceptions. So he posted that sign. So to be accurate, to be biblical, we should post a second sign. Next to his sign. And this sign would read, Forgiven sinners always welcome. Yeah? Forgiven sinners always welcome into the eternal kingdom of the beloved son. The joy, the privilege that is ours now as church family is to gather here in front of this table that remembers how forgiveness of sin comes into our lives. To remember the death of Jesus on the cross as we partake of the the bread and the cup. The bread, a symbol of the body of Jesus, which hung on the cross bearing the penalty of our sin. The blood of Jesus poured out on the ground at the foot of the cross covering the sin debt that we owed to God. His life for our life. This table represents that moment in time when Jesus did that for each one of us. He died so that we would be forgiven sinners, welcomed always into the presence of God. Amen? That's our privilege this morning. If you know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, you have made that decision whenever that happened in your life, then this table belongs to you. If in this moment you would have to say honestly before God, I really haven't settled the question of who Jesus is is in my life, then it would be better as these elements are passed, the bread and the cup, it would be better if you just let them pass by. Because for you yet, they do not have the meaning, the substance of the meaning that God would have for you to, to be partaking. So you might just wisely let that that tray pass by you but if you know jesus today then this is this table is for you to enjoy and to thank and to worship and reverence the god who loves us enough to die in our place so that we would be forgiven sinners who are always welcome amen let's pray together church before we partake well, it's, it's just a, 
It's overwhelming truth, Heavenly Father, that in this moment we can stand before you forgiven, clean, white as snow, as the book of Isaiah would say, our sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. But that's the truth, and we believe it with all of our heart as we come before you now in this moment of, of special worship, remembering the, the death of Jesus, your son, in our place. As we take the bread, as we take the cup, we do so with, with, with great gratitude. We know it's a gift. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But you have lavished your love on us and poured out your grace. And so we, we can take this with joy and with gladness in our hearts and remember the gift. All glory to you as we receive. In Jesus' name, amen. And